Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Could I ask you all, please, to give a warm Adelaide Writers' Week welcome to our guest, the author Malcolm Bly Turnbull. You're amongst friends, uh, Mr Turnbull, because um, Adelaide's always been very fond of you because you sound like us. Sort of, <laughs> climate change is real. Look at the science. That, that, that's an Adelaide accent. <laughs> Spooky enough. <laughs> so, Prime Minister... Uh, no, I've read the book. I know you're not the Prime Minister anymore, but I've always admired the American tradition of addressing an office holder by their title ever after. Mr President, Mr Secretary, Madam Ambassador. But I'll stop calling you Prime Minister because we know what the press are like in this country. And I'd just be saying that I, you insisted I call you Prime Minister. So, may I call you Malcolm? Because I'm going to. Everyone else does. Good-o. <laughs> now, we'll delve into this weighty <clears throat> tome, uh, but we'll touch on some other matters as well. The title of your book is A Bigger Picture. A bigger picture than what picture? A bigger picture than whose picture? Well, it's, it's really a bigger picture than, I guess, what you see in the day-to-day -day tactics of politics. I mean, so much of politics is taken up with the game, you know, which is winning the day, winning the news, uh, who's up, who's down. But I've always believed that uh, power without purpose is pointless. And so, you know, what I set out to do during my time in public life was to achieve, uh, you know, big improvements for Australia, big reforms. Uh, you obviously have to wend your way through all the political... Uh, claptrap and, you know, deal with some difficult, uh, often appalling people in, in doing that, both inside and outside of Parliament. I mean, because otherwise you can't get anything done. But you've got to have your... Eye, the, there is more to politics than just winning elections. You've got to actually set out to make a positive difference. And that's, you know, that is the... That's the key. And, I, I you know, I, I think that's... Uh, I know that's... Uh, Stephen Marshall, your Premier is here, is a dear friend, and really a great example of that kind of leadership where you're focused on achieving things as opposed to just, you know, winning the next poll. Yeah. Um, tell us the backstory of your middle name, Bly. I think it's a family thing. Yeah, well, look, most people would assume, naturally, that I am a direct descendant <laughs> of one of history's greatest sadists. <laughs> However, uh, the true explanation is, in, in some respects, even worse. Uh, uh, William Bly was the governor of New South Wales. Uh, I'd have to defer to Lucy, the, his, the historian in the family, when, uh, at 1805, uh, thank you. Uh, Lucy's book, uh, Biography of Sydney, is probably still available here. So, uh, the, <laughs> she can sign copies later as well. But uh, the um, so Bly was Bly uh, came out to the colony, which was in the thrall of a crooked uh, uh, organisation, the New South Wales Rum Rum Corps. It was a convict society. The Rum Corps would just it was basically you know gangsterism. Effectively, John MacArthur was the main beneficiary of it, and the Turnbulls and some other settlers on the Hawkesbury, you know, some of them free settlers, some of them, you know, emancipated convicts, were small-time people, small-time, you know, farmers and so forth, and they were great supporters of Bly because he was standing up to all the crooks. Uh, and Bly was overthrown in a coup, the Rum Rebellion, 
and they, the Hawkesbury River settlers, you know, signed petitions to support him. And they so admired Bly that they named, many of them named their children after him. And that tradition continued through my family. So you could say, uh, I'm not descended from one of history's greatest sadists, but he has been an object of enormous admiration for the Turnbulls for generations. And who would you now see as your Fletcher Christian? <laughs> well, I don't know. I think uh, I, I, it's... Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's which, which, of my, which of my detractors and rivals and opponents in politics could you best imagine escaping in the arms of a Tahitian maiden? I don't know. <laughs> It's, uh, I'm not sure. It's an interesting spectacle in some respects. You'd have to avert your gaze if it ever came in view. I looked you up on Wikipedia and that was strangely useful. Uh, as a young man, you uh, visited and spoke with the vice-regally dismissed Labor Premier of New South Wales, Jack Lang, when he was an yeah. old man. Tell us about him and did he teach you any valuable lessons? Yeah, he did. Lang... OK, so Lang was... Uh, the Premier of New South Wales, the Labor Premier of New South Wales from 25 to 27 and 30 to 32. He was an enormous man. He, would, he must have been six foot four or five, but he was big, he was big in every respect. He was very imposing. And he uh, developed around himself a personality cult, the like of which I don't think we've ever seen in Australia, I mean, it was you know they was they used to sell busts of him, um, with the slogan on it, "Lang is greater than Lenin," and you know there was quite a lot. When you look at Lang's, you know he would speak in the domain in Sydney and get two hundred thousand people to come and hear him speak. I mean, it was a personality cult, and it, and looking back on it, it had very creepy sort of fascistic kind of elements to it. Although his opponents. His principal opponents were a group called the New Guard that, that, that openly modelled themselves on Mussolini's black shirts, by yeah. the way. So, pretty wild times. Anyway, Lang was, uh, you know, sacked by the governor in 1932, uh, allegedly because he didn't have the money. You know, he, he, was, um, he was not complying with a federal government order to, uh, you know, effectively keep honouring British loans... Uh, and Lang's view was that they should postpone payment of interest to the British bondholders and spend the money on public works and unemployment benefits in Australia. This is all in the Depression. Anyway, the governor sacked him very controversially. Um, and uh, anyway, he remained around. He, look, he led the Labor Party. He left the Labor Party, started his own party. He was an enormously disruptive character. But he was still alive in 1974 and five when I got to know him. Uh, and I was a university student and writing for the Nation Review. And he was just, he was, it was literally like, you know, when someone is that old and they're absolutely coherent and their memory's great, it is like walking through a mirror into another time. Because he would talk about the machinations of the Australian Workers' Union and people who had been with him and against him, who'd betrayed him and, you know, who he'd dealt with all the ins and outs, uh, as though it was happening, it happened yesterday. And the other wild thing was that there was another old guy called William McKell, who had been an anti-Lang person in the Labor Party and had become Premier later 
had gone on to become Governor-General. And he and Lang hated each other with a passion, with a passion that was as raw in 1974 as it had been in 1934. And I used to go and chat to them both. And so when I was writing my little essays, you know, on Australian politics and history for the university, uh, my footnote would be, you know, discussion with Sir William McKell on such and such a date and Jack Lang and such and such. Look, it was really brilliant. It was so nice of them to see me. But, mm. yeah, Lang was... Uh, Lang, Lang was... Lang taught me... Lang t told me a couple of things and he taught me one thing. The thing that he taught me was that a lot of people in politics can be utterly motivated by hatred and negativity. Mm. There's quite a few cases like that. I mean, Abbott, Abbott was a classic example. Uh, and, <clears throat> well, I'm just... Look, I, I'm un, today I'm unplugged, right? So <laughs> I, but he's completely like that. But Lang... And it, it made me realise how, you know, how bad that was. I mean, it's a... I think I've always felt that hatred damages the hater more than the hated. So that was one thing to avoid. Um, the other thing, interestingly, he knew... Because I was in the, a member of the Liberal Party at the time, which he didn't object to, but he actually gave me a warning about the Liberal Party, which was quite interesting. He said, he said you know, the Conservatives, the Liberals, whatever he called us, he said, uh, he said you know, they've got no gratitude. No gratitude. He said... When I was overthrown, when Lang the monster, <laughs> Lang the monster was overthrown, I was succeeded by Bertram Stevens, as he was, leader of the whatever the you know U, UAP or National Party, whatever it was called at the time. Uh, this was pre the formation of the Liberal Party. Uh, I was succeeded by Bertram Stevens. He saved the state from me, from me, the dreadful person that I was. And do you know, do you know, young Malcolm? Do you know what happened to him? No, Mr Lang, I said. He died a pauper <laughs> in the Lewisham Old Men's Home. They wouldn't even find him somewhere to live. So, I remembered that. I think, I think it was Carrie and Fisher. I might say it's very important in politics to have realistic expectations of your colleagues. <laughs> I think it was Carrie Fisher who said that hatred and resentment are like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Yeah. Yeah, well, I remember once um, I, was, I was talking to um, uh, Paul Keating about this, and he was... Uh, Paul's, Paul bears a few grudges. And, he, uh, and Paul was saying that he was... Not long after Howard had become Prime Minister, he was sitting on a plane coming back to Sydney from Singapore and he happened to be sitting next to John Hewson. And they started off talking about what a dreadful fellow John Howard was. And, you know, needless to say, they were in agreement. Uh, and then, <laughs> after a while, Paul said to me, to my astonishment, I found myself defending Howard. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite as bad as that, John. <laughs> so it is a bit, it's a bit like that. Now, I'm going to pick something uh, random out of your book. You were <laughs> raised a Presbyterian and yes. your wife, Lucy, was raised a Roman Catholic. Yes. And uh, you converted to the one true faith sometime in 2002. Uh, yeah, it might, it might have been a bit earlier than that, but yes. But, and, you know, well, yes, it's a sort of an interesting... It's an interest... It's not... It's, that's kind of true, 
Uh, but to be technically correct, in fact, I had got, been told I was a Presbyterian. I'd gone to the Presbyterian church when I was a kid. And certainly when Lucy and I got married, uh, we both, we, you know, we both assumed that I was a Presbyterian, uh, which is why the Anglican vicar didn't want to marry us, but we managed to persuade him to do so. Uh, the, um, but it turned out that there was no evidence that I'd been baptised at all. Uh, so, in fact, I actually became a Catholic rather than getting converted to it. But, yes. Did you have to take instruction? Uh, briefly, yes, briefly. I did, yeah. yeah. And, of course, Kevin... I, Rudd... It was assumed that I'd just, you know, absorb it from, my, <laughs> from the Hughes family, I think. Right. Cultural Catholicism, probably. <laughs> Kevin Rudd, of course, famously converted from Roman Catholicism to the Church of England. Which is obviously inexplicable. Well, now, your Wikipedia... You could, you could say it's all inexplicable. <laughs> your Wikipedia entry records an Oxford don during your time as a Rhodes Scholar saying of you that you were always going to enter life's rooms without knocking. So when did ambition dawn for you? Um, uh, well, I don't know. I suppose I've always been ambitious. Yeah. Ambitious is, ambition is no sin or crime. I think to be encouraged. Yes. Yeah. Now, your book is dedicated to Lucy, and uh, what emerges from the narrative is a lifelong and close partnership. As they used to say, you married well. Yeah. Tell us yeah, how you Considerably met... above my railway station. Right. <laughs> Tell us how you met Lucy Hughes and how you came to send flowers to her father. Yes. Well, that's... Well, so I was working for The Bulletin, uh, the, the, which was a news magazine in those days, and uh, while I was at... Uh, I think I was still at law school or just finishing law school. Anyway, I, was, I worked all my way through university in different jobs, uh, mostly journalism. And um, I was doing writing a profile about Lucy's father, Tom Hughes, who's Attorney General of um, Australia from sort of 68 to 71. And then by this stage was absolute, and had been for quite a few years, the preeminent silk. You know, he was the, uh, you know, uh, yeah, he's a t top trial lawyer, I guess. Anyway, I managed to get an interview with him. And these were in the days when barristers sort of didn't really talk to journalists or weren't meant to or wasn't was frowned on. So it was quite a coup to get him to talk to us. And we got, even got a, got a fantastic photo of him, I might say, uh, as well we put on the cover. Anyway, while I was waiting to interview the great man, I struck up a conversation with the uh, young lady who was noting up his law reports. And you're almost old enough to remember what noting up meant. Mm. For those of you in the pre, in the post-internet era, this was when all the cross-references were actually noted up in law reports by hand. It's a pretty laborious job. Anyway, that was Lucy, and we, we had a wonderful chat. I fell madly in love with her. Uh, and um, I finally, you know, spoke to Tom, and I was just... I was just fascinated by Lucy, uh, and still am, of course. And I sent some flowers to her, care of her father's chambers, where I assumed she would be. And the great man uh, saw the flowers, uh, took them home. He was single at the time. He was, Lucy was living with him. She was effectively his housekeeper, as well as, um, you know, tenant, I suppose. And he, uh, uh, he took them home and said to her, that young Malcolm Turnbull's a very charming fellow. Uh, he so appreciated my giving him the interview, he sent me these flowers. 
Now, as you would understand, Anthony, as a barrister, barristers are in show business. And you have to have an enormous self-belief to be a good advocate, really, you do. And so it just never occurred to Tom that the flowers were due to anyone other than himself. <laughs> and Lucy suggested she have a look at the flowers uh, and notice that they were addressed to her. And I have to say, it took a while for that, my relationship with her father, to get over that <laughs> incredible rebuff. But we did. We ended up becoming uh, very good friends uh, uh, as, and, and remain so. Of course, he is a, he's, uh, you know, he's, well, he's 97 now, so he's, uh, he's reached a great age. And still, he's no, he's no longer practising. Tom, Tom uh, closed his uh, chambers about not quite 10 years ago. And I remember saying to him, Tom, so why are you uh, sort of retiring from practice? He said, you know... He said, I just have to recognise you don't get as much work in your late 80s as you do in your late 70s. <laughs> now, I want to raise with you now what's come to be known as the culture of the place, the place being Parliament House in Canberra. Mm. And specifically this weekend, there was a, a bombshell revelation, mm. allegations of an historical rape made by a young woman who's since taken her life mm. uh, against a man serving in Morrison's cabinet. Mm. Uh, and I believe that... Uh, while she was alive, that she had reached out to you and Lucy. Mm. Um, how do you see this matter proceeding now, given that the complainant is deceased? Well, okay, so look, the 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 woman the uh, wrote it's an Adelaide woman uh, wrote to Lucy and me uh, in December of 2019, seeking our advice. She described a pretty horrific uh, rape that she said had occurred in the hands of this person you mentioned, the person who's now, she said, in the Cabinet. Uh, she said that it had occurred in 1988. She, uh, she said, among the things she noted, I might say, is that she'd kept extensive diaries, and uh, so I hope they've, they're still extant. Um, the, um, anyway... We, she mentioned that she had a lawyer and she was talking to the New South Wales police uh, and we, said, we wrote back to her, obviously expressed our, you know, sympathy and, uh, and um, you know, really uh, our concern for her and her, what she'd uh, experienced, but said, you've got a lawyer, you're seeing the police, that's the right thing to do. And that was, I mean... I know quite independently of us, she had spoken to Penny Wong uh, in Adelaide around the same time, and Penny had, had said exactly the same thing to her. You know, make sure you've got a lawyer who knows what they're doing, who are competent in the area, and uh, take it up with the police, which, because the, the uh, rape allegedly occurred in New South Wales and Sydney, as obviously the New South Wales police. Now... She uh, died, uh, so it's it, you know so it's been reported at her own hand. Uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's been reported uh, in uh, the middle of last year, and the that was around the same time that the Dyson Hayden, the revelations about Dyson Hayden came out, 
So I don't know whether there was a connection there or not, uh, but it struck me that there was clearly, given this background, clearly there would be an inquest. Yeah. Uh, and so I got in touch with the police commissioner here, uh, this being the, where she died, the relevant jurisdiction for the inquest, and I sent him uh, the correspondence she'd sent us and our reply. And so, uh, and I think, I think Penny Wong, again, did the same, essentially the same thing. So I don't know whether there'll be an inquest or not. I think, there, frankly, there should be. Uh, the fact that she said that she had kept diaries relating to all this, I don't know whether they were contemporaneous diaries or, you know, some, you know, sometime later in time, but the allegation is incredibly serious. Obviously, it's, it's about, you know, as I said the other night on 7.30 report talking about the Brittany Higgins case, I mean, you know, we can't get away from the fact rape is is one of the most serious crimes in the criminal calendar. I mean, when Lucy and I were law students, and probably when you were too, Anthony, it was like just below murder and manslaughter. You know, it's about as serious as you can get. And so it has to be taken seriously, but obviously in the circumstances, uh, a woman who's got a complaint ongoing about a senior public figure taking her own life, you know, I think there clearly needs to be some form of inquest. So yeah. I assume that will... I don't know what the process is here. You'd know about that. But I think there probably... I think there should be. Well, this increasing alarm about the uh, culture of the place, uh, the Brittany Higgins matter, um, uh, Scott Morrison said that he was only made aware of the allegations about uh, by Brittany uh, Higgins only days before they were made public. Now, you know well the workings of the Prime Minister's office. I do. Did that surprise you? Uh, yes. Yep. Yeah. Next page. No, no. I mean, I mean, look. I, I mean, look. I mean, let, let's not. There's no point being merely mouthed about it. The proposition that the prime minister's office was not advised of this uh, incident, to use a inadequate term, in the defence minister's office when was it in March 2019? Yeah. The pro idea that the prime minister's office was not notified of that uh, immediately shortly after it occurred is just utterly unbelievable, yeah. right? There's literally not one person in the parliament, let alone in Australia, who would believe that, yeah. pro that proposition. So that's point one. As to whether the Prime Minister knew, well, you know, I'm not... I think it's... I mean, he says he's disappointed he wasn't told. I'm astonished. <laughs> if he wasn't told, I'm astonished he wasn't told. Sometimes political staff will be very... Um, uh, judicious, if you like, about what they tell the boss. You know, I mean, there are, and there, but I find it extraordinary that he wasn't told about this. I mean, one of the reasons you've got to give a prime minister or a premier, for that matter, a heads up about, you know, uh, in, you know, bad things that have happened, is that otherwise they can get flat, caught flat-footed. You know, you're out there doing a doorstop, talking about you know, the opening of a new road or, you know, something might be quite utterly mundane and then someone says, what about? Mm -hmm. And you're there saying, I have no idea in the world. So, you know, you, there's a lot of, uh, um, you know, you, 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 the last thing you want to be is look like a mushroom who's been kept in the dark, right? Yeah. So, 
particularly if you're the boss. So I, so I would say it's unbelievable that the PMO didn't know about it, and not only is it unbelievable, it is unbelieved. Uh, as to what, at what and when Morrison knew, well, that's really, it seems incredible what he said, but it, it, may be, it may be true. And still on the culture of the place, as it's called, um, uh, the famous Prime Minister, the um, Barnaby uh, Joyce Bonk Ban, um, yeah. <laughs> reading in your book that uh, he and Vicky Chapman, Champion have been seen at the GP's office, and uh, when you raised this with him, he lied to you. Oh, he did, yeah. That didn't really have a long shelf life, did it? I mean, you were going to find out soon enough. Well, look, I don't... Yeah, I, I guess... Yeah, true, I suppose, yes. You describe true. a conservative <laughs> leader who'd been a champion of traditional marriage while practising traditional adultery. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was... In my experience... In my experience, uh, the... Uh, yes, that's, that's not uncommon. Mm. Uh, as I used to say about the same sex and the same when we're having the you know the debate about legalizing uh, same sex marriage and marriage equality and so forth, uh, I used to observe uh, that the issue was dripping with hypocrisy and the pools were deepest at the feet of the sanctimonious. Yes. That was a lovely phrase. Mm. Mm. Now that does segue neatly. You've raised the uh, plebiscite on same sex marriage. Um, at the time it was first raised under Tony Abbott's leadership, I think it was Liberal policy not to have a conscience vote on the floor of the House. Yeah, well, the party room, yeah, the party, I mean, the, the party room uh, was opposed to it. I mean, look, it was... The, the approach Abbott took on same-sex marriage was utterly at odds with the Liberal Party tradition. I mean, this is, you know, one of... A lot of people who claim to be conservatives in politics are not conservative at all. I tend to Donald Trump as exhibit mm -hmm. A-plus on that score. But, but with Abbott, I mean, the whole point of a conscience vote is that people who can express their vote, notwithstanding the majority, is against them, mm -hmm. right? So, historically, in the Liberal Party, uh, legislation relating to marriage had always been a conscience vote. I mean, John Howard, for example, voted against the Family Law Act in 1970 when it was legislated in 1975. And, you know, this goes right back to legislation in the 50s. So, unfortunately, uh, you know, this... There, you know, there, there, there was a... You know, the party room made a decision uh, uh, under Abbott's leadership, and Abbott was certainly very opposed to having a free vote, although he had given me and others, like Christopher Pine, assurances that we would have it. And we ended up with this commitment to have a public vote, which I did not think was a good idea, to say the least. Uh, but uh, we were stuck with it. And I think with the... You know, and how... It's, the chapter about this is, I, I think, is quite interesting because it was sort of rather Byzantine. There are all sorts of feints. When I say feints, F-E-I-N-T-S's, you know, and a lot of tactics in getting that sorted out. But the virtue of the postal ballot was that you did not have polling booths, so you didn't have the opportunity for, you know, confrontations, yep. you know, of the kind that you might have otherwise had. And what was fascinating to me was not just that there was a majority voted yes, it was 62 or 3%, big majority, uh, but just under 80% of Australians chose to vote. I was so proud mm. about that. I mean, 
what my commitment was, if a majority voted yes, we were going to legislate it. And frankly, at one level, I didn't care if there were only three people who voted, me, Lucy and Tony Abbott, <laughs> in which case we were still going to legislate still it, right? <laughs> so that was the deal. But obviously, the higher the participation rate, the better. And it was enormous. Uh, you, know, when you, and, you know, we've got to... Look, I know it, the whole experience was very hurtful to, to many people, but, you know, the important thing was getting it done. Um, can I just say, you know, in most countries with voluntary voting, they don't get anywhere near 80% for a national election that is choosing the government. So this was, a, this was an incredible statement of Australians' concern, their citizenship, their desire to be active citizens, that 80% voted in a completely voluntary ballot, they could have just as easily thrown in the bin, yeah. you know? And uh, so, I, 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 look, I reckon it was the biggest hug of love and respect Australians could give to you know, LGBTQI Australians, right? It was just, it was so emphatic. And it, it, it basically, people can go on, they can say, you know, they can criticise gay marriage, they can say, you know, they can express all sorts of views, but the issue on marriage is over. The people spoke, the parliament legislated, it'll never be revisited. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It, it was about 62% yes votes, and mm. I remember at the time of the campaign, a lot of conservative voices were convinced that they were the silent majority. Oh, so, yeah. what contributed to that delusion, do you think? Well, it's, a, it's called listening to yourself. Ah. <laughs> uh, it is called... It is called... I, there was one of the, uh, the then president of the LNP in Queensland uh, said to me, do you know, you don't... This is a terrible issue. You don't understand. Queensland is overwhelmingly against gay marriage. They hate gay marriage. This, is, this state is absolutely against it. I went, oh, OK, well, all right. OK, we'll find out. I said, I don't agree with you. Actually, I think you're, you're wrong, but we're going to find out. Queensland had a higher yes vote than New South Wales. Really? You know? And, I mean, there were only uh, two electorates in Queensland, to my recollection, who voted no, and neither by very big margins. You know? So... Uh, yes, yeah, so I think that was, uh, that was, yeah, that was a bit of a wake-up call. Uh, and this is the problem. This is one of the problems in the media today. And I mean, you know, this is... You see this like we see it here, but it is much worse in the US. You get a right-wing populist... Populist right-wing, what I'd call... Populist right-wing authoritarian ecosystem in the media. I mean, Murdoch is obviously the big part of it here and also in the States with Fox News, that creates an alternative echo chamber uh, and which is just pumped full of lies and prejudice and hatred. And you see the results of that uh, with uh, centre-right part, what used to be centre-right parties, the Republican Party in the US, now going right over to the loony right. Uh, and you see the outcome on January the 6th when a mob, thousands and thousands of people, actually stormed the Capitol, egged on by and inspired by the President, Donald Trump, and fuelled by the propaganda they'd had in the media, particularly Fox News, which was running the line that Donald Trump had actually won the election and that Joe Biden had stolen it. Well, 
you know, this is the interesting thing. There is a market, media market for lies and disinformation. So whether it is, you know, COVID is no worse than a, a cold, uh, you know, uh, uh, climate change is not real, global warming is a hoax, uh, you know, Donald Trump won the election. These are all examples of lies and, I mean, the Trump won the election thing was obviously the most readily demonstrably false. But that, until there was a month or so ago, I saw a poll which had, like, you know, a third of Americans believed Trump had won the election. Now, the damage you do to a nation, to a society, when you undermine faith in its democratic institutions is enormous. I mean, this is what Putin has been doing, seeking to do with his campaigns in the West, uh, exacerbate divisions between, in America, particularly black and white, uh, and undermine faith in institutions. And you, but you know what? The Russians, they can just, they can just go and do something else, you know, have a nice time in the bunya or whatever. The fact is the American right-wing media are doing all that for them. So it's, you know, I, I hope January the 6th is a massive wake-up call uh, not just for Americans, but for everybody. There are consequences with this systematic lying and division uh, in, the, in this increasingly fragmented media. You see, if you... If I could just... I'll just, I'll just add a gloss to that. If you go back to, you know, 20-odd years ago, I guess, uh, and obviously many years before that, the object of all media was to reach a broad audience. And that was to maximise the eyeballs or, you know, listeners or viewers or whatever for advertising purposes. A bunch of things have happened. Technologies made news reporting and dissemination cheaper. The internet is obviously, an, you know, had a big part of that. And so what people can now do is monetize a very a sliver. Now, if you are telling, persuading 10% that Donald Trump of the electorate, or 20% of the electorate that Donald Trump won the election, that may not be enough to affect the outcome of a general election, but it will absolutely skew the views in a particular political party. And so that is a risk for the Liberals, Nationals here. Obviously, you can see with the Republicans there. I mean, look at these Republican senators who are going along with Trump. And, I mean, it is, like, it's embarrassing. They know how bad he is. They, they called him out before when he was running for president. But you know why they can't speak against him? Because they will lose their pre-selections, their mm. primaries. And so this is, this is, the, this is the real problem. So the, the, the right-wing, you know, populist right-wing media may not capture the broad swathe of the audience, but it can capture a, you know, traditional set, what used to be called a centre-right political party in, say, Republicans or Liberals here, and which, I might say, just noting the Premier here, you know, is one of the great achievements, I think, that Stevens had with his colleagues in the South Australian Liberal Party to keep it firmly anchored in the centre, because whether you're a Liberal voter or a Labor, you might be the most dyed-in-the-wool Labor voter, you want... You do not... It's in everybody's interest that both parties are firmly grounded uh, in the centre going, contesting for that middle ground. You know, we've got a couple of things that help us on that in Australia, compulsory voting and, um, you know, objective, independent determination of constituency boundaries. But 
I come back to this, and you know, I, I said this at the, you know, back of the book, you know, that our Australian project is a great achievement, but we cannot take it for granted. We cannot take the achievement or its endurance for granted. So, most successful multicultural society in the world, we've got to work hard to keep it that way because there are forces in our community that would bring it undone. <clears throat> And just before we leave Murdoch, on page 483, you talk about the way that all of his media interests have uh, denied climate change, promoted mm. Brexit, and you write. But then again, as we reflect on Rupert Murdoch's achievements, we have to ask, what good has he done apart from making himself and his family rich? It pretty much yeah. sums it up, doesn't it? Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, that that... I know that there are some people who think that Brexit... Obviously, there are a lot of people in the UK particularly who think Brexit was a good idea. I think it's self-evidently going to carry with it a very big economic cost for Britain, and that's becoming apparent. But, you know, Donald Trump... I mean, that was... Donald Trump was enabled, supported, backed in by Murdoch, particularly Fox News, until right till the very end. Uh, and Trump was a disaster for the United States. And... You know, it is just... It, I mean, Biden is, you know, trying to... Bi Biden... Well, just, just thank heavens he didn't... Uh, Trump didn't get a second term. And as, as to denying global warming, well, you know, that has been a consistent uh, Murdoch and right-wing theme. Uh, heaven, well, we're, we're living with the consequences of global warming in Australia. We understand it. Denying global warming is like denying gravity. The only problem is you can disprove a disbelief in gravity very readily. You just open a first-floor window and invite the disbeliever to step out, you know. Mm. But the... But it is, uh, you know... I mean, Mike, uh, another author, but Michael Mann's recent book, The New Climate Wars, is I really recommend because it is a kind of chapter and verse and very detailed uh, explanation of... Uh, exposition of how you know, action on climate change has been frustrated by, by people in the fossil fuel industry, the right wing of politics and the media. Now, when you made your cha uh, challenge to Abbott in 2015 in your speech in the Senate courtyard, yep. you spoke of the need for a different style of leadership. Yep. Julia Gillard, famously in deposing Kevin Rudd, spoke of a good government having lost its way, but by this stage, Abbott wasn't even leading a good government. So to what extent do you see that Abbott's chief of staff, Peter Credlin, or Abbott himself, were responsible for the dysfunction in his office, which ultimately undid his prime ministership? Well, I mean, ultimately, the boss is always responsible, right? So, uh, but Cre the, the Abbott-Credlin relationship is one of the more fascinating, in a sort of bleak kind of way, uh, that I've ever observed. I've never seen someone in a leadership position so under the sort of simultaneously controlled and despised by another. Uh, it's, a, it's a very... Look, it's a... Uh, I mean, I, I, I put a lot of thought into how I described that relationship because I, can't, I couldn't do it... To, it is a big part of our history. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was toxic, right? And uh, I think the... Um, you know, a, a change... The change I was able to give was obviously a more optimistic, positive government, you know? Uh, never been a more exciting time to be an Australian. I used to say that all the time. I was focused on, you know, instead of frightening people and 
terrorising them, I, you know, with fears and anxieties, I was focused on, you know, boosting things and encouraging to, us to see the better side of ourselves and our opportunities. And I think I was able to get a lot more done than I actually imagined I would. But no, it was a, it was a bad, that was a bad period. And, you know, in politics, not everything flows from, I mean, not everything flows from the leader, but the leader is so important, as in business too, for that matter. Uh, and you've got to set an example. So if you can be upbeat and positive, others will be. If you are respectful, uh, both in your dealings with others and in your office, then others will be. You know, and we talk about parliamentary culture. You know, one of the uh, things I, you know, when I introduced the ban on ministers having sex with their staff, which, I mean, you might, I mean, like, every, there should be a collective eye roll here. The idea that you had to write that down is staggering. But anyway, uh, I did, um, as we all, and we all know why I did. But the other important thing is, you know, if, and this is very relevant to Brittany Higgins' circumstances, unless ministers are behaving in a respectful, appropriate way, you cannot expect their staff to be any different, you know. So if a minister is out, uh, you know, uh, you know, getting drunk and, you know, you know, misbe misbehaving with, misbehaving with, uh, with, uh, you know, young, young or younger female staffers over whom he has a degree of authority and control, I mean, that, which is wrong, which is so wrong, right? Uh, but if he's doing that, then the people that work for him will think that's okay. You know, I mean, you, you know, that's why when I wrote my, rewrote my ministerial code, uh, you know, in, there are some sections there that were not continued with by my successor, but, but part, the key part of it was values have to be lived, uh, respect, you know, is absolutely vital, and you've got to lead by example. You know, and that's, I mean, I don't see how you get away with that. I mean, you cannot change the culture in any organisation if the changes you seek are not being followed uh, and exemplified by the people at the top. Now, jo Joe Dyer predicted this because time is actually flying by, so we might move to page 163. Can you pass me that? Yeah. Okay, 163, yes. I, yes, it's coming that. up in my mind now, I remember it. You say, underline the way the right of the Liberal Party play by different rules. Yep. They threaten to blow the place up if they don't get their way and are utterly reckless in their destabilisation of any leader or policies they don't like. So keeping the party together means giving in to them. Well, yeah, well, it, 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 yes, it, 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 can, it can mean that. Yeah, and that's, that's right. I mean... This, this is the sort of, you know, the right in Canberra operate as like terrorists, and obviously I hasten to say they don't use guns and bombs and knives and stuff. But, you know, so what is the tactic of a terrorist? Let's just think about that. The terrorist says is typically a minority, and the terrorist says, unless you give in to me, I will blow up another cafe or another plane or a train or whatever, right? And that is the purpose of terrorist violence, right? That's it. That is its... You know, the book's written by this. Some of it... And, I mean, you know, when people say terrorists are insane, 
that's, I don't think that's entirely right. I mean, it is a tactic that has been used in, in every age. Uh, but you've just got to be resisted. Now, the problem in the Liberal Party in Canberra is this. The premise of a political party is that you get your party room together or your caucus if you're the Labor Party, you've got, say, 100 people in a room and you debate something, you thrash it out and then you say, all right, you know, uh, the majority or the consensus is X, we do X. That, that is how it works. Can't work any other way. But if you have a group that are basically prepared to say, we don't care what the majority say, we will blow the joint up if we don't get what we want, they can then intimidate others to give in to them. Who, and and in, you saw that in the coup in August 2018 when my leadership was uh, overthrown. And, you know, look, you don't have to take my word for it. You know, there are plenty of people, including Linda Reynolds, by the way, the Defence Minister, who gave a speech about it in the Senate. Uh, there were essentially... The, there was so much horror and threats and, you know, chaos brought on that some people in the centre just said, we can't stand it anymore. The only way to stop it happening is to give in to the bullies. And regrettably, uh, that's, you know, that's human nature. That is how terrorists win. Uh, and this is, this is a major problem. And, of course, that they feel they're able to do that, uh, at least in the federal party, because they're backed up by and generally amplified by the right-wing media. And, you know, they work... They work together. I mean, you know, Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, there's a conversation related in the book. Murdoch acknowledged to me that uh, his leading, you know, his people in his organisation, uh, notably Paul Whitaker, uh, who was then the senior editorial person, uh, wanted us to lose the 29th, the election that would be held in 2019, so that Abbott could come back as opposition leader after the election. And, what's, I mean, he, uh, Murdoch said this to Kerry Stokes. He said to Kerry, Kerry Stokes, when Murdoch said to Kerry, we've got to get rid of Turnbull, uh, and Kerry said, well, that's crazy, you know, we'll end up with, with Shorten. Um, Murdoch said, oh, well, three years of Labor wouldn't be so bad. Now, you know, this is... So you're dealing with some pretty crazy stuff. So, you know, as it happens, of course, Morrison got re-elected, but that was not... Um, there was no way that was a foreseeable or indeed remotely likely consequence of what happened. So, you know, you are, you are dealing with people, I think, on the right who would rather be in opposition and in control than in government. And that is, that is so bonkers. I mean, John Howard used to describe that as people yearning to squabble over the spoils of opposition, mm. and, uh, which is a fair point. Well, time means we'll have to chop out a lot of uh, stuff I wanted to discuss with you about the coup. But on page 648, you write that you received what you described as a long self-serving note from Matthias Corman, yeah. including saying that his wife was genuinely traumatised. I want to read out your reply. Matthias, at a time when strength and loyalty were called for, you were weak and treacherous. You should be ashamed of yourself. I like, well understand how disappointed your wife is in your conduct. <laughs> she probably thought, like most of us, that you were a better man than you turned out to be. <laughs> OK, we'll, we'll cut to some of the other material. A few portraits. Scott Morrison, at page 477. 
brittle emotionally and easily offended. That, well, yeah, that's, that's true. You also write that you've concluded in retrospect, although you're not 100% certain, that Morrison was playing a double game, professing public loyalty, and who can forget the daggy dad's arm around the shoulder mm. while his people were out undermining you. Well, uh, what in particular brought you to that view? Oh, well, I did describe it in the book, but I mean, I think it's, uh, it, it, that was his MO. I mean, that's what he did with, uh, with Abbott. You know, he, he was working to, I mean, he, he, I enlisted his support in challenging Abbott. Uh, he was always keen to move on, to get rid of Abbott, frankly. Uh, but he professed support for Abbott publicly while his, his supporters were voting the other way. I mean, in the, in the ballot in 2015, uh, I think Scott may well have voted for Abbott. He may well have voted for Abbott, but all of the people whose votes he could influence voted for me. So, you know, he's, he, he has a... Even by political standards, he's got a sort of a, you know, a, an, or, an audaciously high tolerance for hypocrisy. <laughs> mm. OK, and another portrait. Peter Dutton. Yes. Is is he is he He's a big big lot of fans here. Yeah. Is he as much fun as he looks? Uh, yes. <laughs> now look, I have to say it, um, as you read through the book, one thing stands out that for a politician you seem like such a nice person. For instance, hmm. Kevin Rudd, when you told him over the phone that the cabinet couldn't support or uh, nominate him to be Secretary General of the United Nations, which tag is it? Tag one. Oh, it's gold. And, um, and you said, Kevin, the consensus view, and it's my view too, is that you aren't suited to the role because of your poor interpersonal and management skills. That was about as tactfully as I could put it. And speaking before we came up here, you said that you'd cleaned up the language here. I'll give a language warning because I'm about to quote Kevin Rudd. You little fucking rat. <laughs> you piece of shit. I'm going to get you for this. I'm going to come down to Australia and campaign against you in every part of the country. I will remind them of God would fucking grit you. And it went on some time until you hung up, I understand. Yeah, yeah well, it was. It was, um, yeah, it was pretty well. Interestingly, Kevin has confirmed all of that and uh, uh, subsequently and gone on to say that I did clean it up. There, were, there, were, there was a word, a term that he's very fond of that I... I initially had in the draft, and then I, I just thought, I'm just not prepared to put that in a book that I've written, so I took it. So I did, it is toned down a bit, but it was, it was, it was, sort, of, it was sort of funny, you know. It's like saying to someone, I'm worried you've got a short fuse and you're violent, and they respond by punching you in the nose. <laughs> Finally, in terms of the portraits, I do want to try and leave a bit of uh, time for questions. We might run over a bit as well. Christopher I had some good periods with, with, with Kevin, though, too, you know. I mean, oh, yeah. like, it's, you know, it's a sort of, it's not, it's a, it's a more, it's a, it's a, a more of a uh, piebald uh, experience with, with Kevin. There were some bright moments, funny moments. Like, he, he, um, yeah, he, he, look, he can be, he, he's, he just, his interpersonal skills are suboptimal. Suboptimal. No <laughs> Finally, on the portraits, Christopher Pine is a local boy. You know he wouldn't forgive either of us if we didn't actually mention him. What's, what's been your Christopher Pine journey? Uh, well, I, look, I've, I've got on well with Christopher from the first time uh, I met him, and he's, a, you know, he's one of the very few friends I have made in politics. I've got a few people who are friends 
you know, like Julie Bishop, another Adelaide uh, person uh, who was a friend of ours before either of us were in politics. Uh, but no, Christopher is uh, Christopher is is hilarious, and he's. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing about Christopher is you cannot satirise him, right? <laughs> I mean, the real thing, the real, the real thing. I mean, the. Uh, and I, I, I always used to wind Christopher up. Uh, well, you have to, you know, because you do. a great performer needs encouragement. <laughs> and I remember after that rather bizarre day when ScoMo brought a lump of coal into the House of Representatives, which, which was, you know, I, I, I had no one, I think, apart from him, knew he was going to do that. And it was very, very odd. And as I say in the book, the only thing, the only consolation out of all of that was the look on Christopher's face when uh, they, someone tried to hand Christopher the lump of coal, you know. <laughs> but... He took Scott to task about this afterwards, and it was, it was an absolutely brilliant speech. And he, he, said, uh, he said, Scott, you may well think that everybody loves coal, but I can tell you they don't. They don't in my electorate. In fact, they hate coal. They don't want to have coal-fired power stations. They want nice, clean, renewable energy in my electorate. And, of course, as he was going on in this form, and I sort of had to help him out, and I said, and particularly in Burnside, Christopher. Yes, he said, <laughs> in Burnside above all. He, he said, so, anyway. OK, just before we take some questions, um, how would you like the nation to remember your prime ministership? Oh, fondly and... Uh, and uh, Fondly, indulgently, and uh, forgivingly. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> okay, I think there's a queue down the middle here. Mm. Thank you, Malcolm, for coming. It's been fantastic. But since the 6th of November, 1999, I've, I've always had this question that I wanted to ask you, and here we are. How did the Republican movement fail to have a three-way vote. I mean, why couldn't it have just been yes or no and then decide the outcome of how later? Mm. Because we would be in a republic now if that was the case. Yeah, I... Look, I, it's a really good question. I actually don't agree with you, but the, the, I'll just explain why. Under the Constitution, a, an amendment to the Constitution has to be a particular proposal. In fact, it is a bill to amend the Constitution, so, you, you know, you can't have options and so forth. Um, I think the uh, mistake, and I, I can't say we may, because we were not in charge. As Kim Beasley once said to me, uh, comrade, he said, uh, the, um, the fate of the Republic is in the hands of its enemies, and that's because, you know, Howard was PM, and obviously he and Minchin, another South Australian, were in charge of the whole process, and neither of them wanted to be a republic. I think if we had... Um, if, we were, if you wanted to do it right, and literally that was not an option at that stage, you should have a... Not a, refer, not a plebiscite on whether we should be a republic or not, because I think you'd probably lose that, because people would say, ah, you're just seeking a blank check. Mm. Well, that used to be the IRM's policy, it was Keating's idea, I think, with the benefit of hindsight, that's not the way to go. What I think we should do uh, is, is, at the appropriate time, which will be after the end of the Queen's reign, my, in my view, uh, we should have a plebiscite which asks 
whether people want direct election or parliamentary election of the president, you know, the two options, thrash that out, uphill and downdale for, you know, months, make a decision, and then having made that decision, incorporate that in the amendments that become part of the referendum. Because the problem in the 99 referendum is we were fighting on two fronts. We had the, it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know, monarchist camp, and you had the direct electionists who were, who were reckless, in my view, because they were a classic case of allowing the perfect to be the enemy of the good, and they were saying, unless it's direct election, you know, it's not direct election, so vote no and we'll have another go in a few years' time. Well, it's more than 20, it's 22 years ago now, so you can see how honest that was. So that's, that's how I'd answer your question. Thank you. And you've answered the other one that I was going to ask about when. Yeah, well, I, I think if you want to win, that's the time to do it, right? Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. If you had to do it again, would you have rejected the Uluru Statement as categorically as you rejected it originally? And if you were in a, if you were in a position today to be presented with it, how would you receive it? Well, look, I, 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 I didn't reject it categorically, to be honest. I mean, the, uh, what I said at the time was that I did not believe we should insert in the constitution, seek to insert in the constitution, a provision that establishes a national consultative assembly elected by and composed of only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that is, um, the, the reason for that is essentially because I am a Republican with a small r, I think that all of our national you know, elected positions should be open <coughs> to all Australians. You know, my, my focus is on citizenship and equality of all Australians in that constitutional context. Uh, but the, you know, the Uluru Statement itself is actually, a, it really, it is a, it's, a, it's actually a piece of verse. It's almost, you know, it's poetry. Uh, so I certainly didn't reject the aspirations, the, 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 you know, the sentiments, if you like, uh, at all. But I, that particular aspect of it, which is what Noel Pearson was, you know, campaigning for, uh, both I and the other members of the cabinet did, did you know, didn't agree with. And I, I, I'd stand by that. I mean, it's not, it's a, you know, there is a, there is a great, Australia is a extraordinary achievement. Uh, it is the most successful multicultural society in the world. We've got to hang on to that. And a key, I, I believe, a key part of that is uh, that in a, in a sort of legal, political, parliamentary sense, constitutional sense, the only, you know, the highest office, the most important office is Australian citizen. And that is true whether you are descended from people who uh, lived here 60,000 years ago or, you know, descended from people who came, you know, as convicts or just arrived, you know, a year ago and got your citizenship last Tuesday, you know. So I think that's the, that, that, that's, that's my view. So that's, that's where we parted company on that. Thank you. <laughs> um, this is a wonderful opportunity and we have to respect our democracy. Um, I wonder how different 
would Australia be today as far as climate change had Fran Bailey not been sick on the 30th of November 2009? For those of you that don't know, that was the unfortunate... Yeah. Would yeah, that, it be well, different? That, that was my first defenestration. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, as leader of the Liberal Party by the right, yeah. Um, yeah, well, look, I think if... My view is if we had got the uh, emissions trading scheme that Rudd was, uh, you know, presenting past, uh, I think if we've got that done in 2009, and, I mean, there are a lot of other people uh, to blame there for that, no notably the Greens who, who voted against it in the Senate. I mean, that was just a terrible mistake. And I know... And this is another classic case of saying the perfect's the enemy of the good. Yeah. I mean, if Rudd's CPRS which, by the way, was essentially the same as the emissions trading scheme designed in John Howard's government. I mean, I actually, as John Howard's environment minister, moved and, you know, got legislated the first piece of legislation for the emissions trading scheme, the ENGAS, uh, National Greenhouse Gas Emissions Recording Scheme Act, I think is what it is. Anyway, something like that. Uh, anyway, I got that done. So, so an ETS was bipartisan. And, you know, that's what was destroyed by the right, and obviously Tony Abbott really weaponised that. But if it had been passed in 2009, I'm telling you, by now it would have stayed there. It would have become about as controversial a piece of fiscal legislation as the GST. Yeah. You know, every now and then people would have said, oh, we've got to change it, tweak it, amend it. And that's why I backed it in, because I said, we've got to get the thermostat on the wall. We've got to get the thermostat on the wall, and once we've got it legislated, we can then tweak it up or down or, you know, adjust the settings, but we've got to get a mechanism for putting that price on carbon. But, you know, it's, uh, it's been turned into, you know, the most highly charged electrical third rail in Australian politics now. So... And I think we've got one last question. Yep. In 1981, when you ran for pre-selection in Wentworth... Did you choose the wrong party? Uh, well, well, not in Wentworth. <laughs> the Labor candidate in Wentworth. They, 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 the Labor actually thought they could win Wentworth in 2007, but, but no, I, no I, look, I, um, that's a good question. Everyone says that. I, I, there was a time when um, Keating was very, which was very... Look, I was flattered by it. You know, I like, like Keating. I've always got on well with him. Uh, as, as has Luce. I mean, they've actually just completed a piece of work on Macquarie Street uh, together. But Paul was tried to recruit me to the Labor Party in 94 or thereabouts, three or four. And um, I said to him at the time, I said, it's very kind of you to ask, but I wouldn't be comfortable in the Labor Party and the Labor Party wouldn't be comfortable with me. Now, it may be that the same could have been said at the Liberal Party too. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think I'm more... I, I, look, I'm, I am a smaller liberal, right? Uh, the sort of right-wing nutjobbery that increasingly you see on, in, you know, liberal parties, or, you know, that's the wrong word, in centre-right parties, uh, I have no truck with at all. And they, they obviously have no truck with me. Uh, the, um, uh, you know, it's a... It's a the, the, the reality is, tragically, that far too many of the people in 
centre-right politics who claim to be conservatives wouldn't know the difference between Edmund Burke and Tony Burke. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are not conservatives at all. I mean, they're just, they're just populist authoritarians. I mean, it's a, you know, anyone that tells you Donald Trump is a conservative, I mean, it's just ludicrous. He is anything but. Conservatives defend and support the established institutions in our society. This sort of populist right uh, has sought to undermine them and delegitimise them, and that's not what conservatives should do. OK, as with uh, all other authors, um, copies of A Bigger Picture are available in the tent, where I think uh, Malcolm will be uh, happy to sign copies. Um, can you please thank, for such a wonderful, entertaining afternoon, our 29th thank Prime you. Minister. Thank you. Thanks a lot.